This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got Sandy Akita, Professor of Economics. That's right. Professor of Economics at Purchase College in the State University of New York System. Uh, it's Sandy, a mouthful. He lives and works in, in Brooklyn, New York. You you have a history in Brooklyn yourself. You also have a history in the SUNY system. That's right. I was QB uh, quarterback, for Qu- those of you who aren't that's what, That's when you went away to New York on your football scholarship. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's yeah. exactly it. <laughs> Anyone who's ever met you knows that's a joke. Uh, yeah. But yeah, anyway, so... You would be a QB, though. You, I would you'd be. definitely I'm, be a QB. I got the... You got the hair for it. I, no, I was thinking the the imagination and the ability to read the field. Yeah, I was thinking the hair for it. Uh, so anyways, uh, it's it's a great program. We're, we're very fortunate to have Sandy on. And, and actually, if you want to check out more about what Sandy's doing, he's also at marketurbanism.com, which is his site. Um, he's talking about density. He's talking about... Yeah, and, uh, and well, we should say he's also writes for FEE, which is a foundation for economic education. Right. And he's, he's written quite a bit about housing supply. And demand, supply issues, and that's why we had him on. So it's great to have Sandy on the program, and you guys are going to enjoy it for sure. For sure, Matt. But before we get to our interview with Sandy, uh, we've got some housekeeping. One is uh, BCREA just came out with uh, their market forecast. That's right. Well, everybody's interested in predictions, right? And, uh, you know, we're always a little bit hesitant to give them here, but the British Columbia Real Estate Association has given their projection for the fall and for 2019. And the way they do it is based on sales transactions. Sure. 
So sales. So wait. Tra- so let me just understand this. Then we're talking about sales volume because we have a lot of people that reach out to us that say, "Oh my God, I just read an article that said that sales thirty percent down." Yeah, Vancouver real estate is thirty percent down. Well, and here's the thing, and right? they think that's pricing. Well, and I think the media is actually using that percentage. Oh, a drop, thirty percent drop in sale in in real estate. Right. And it's you know that headlines grabs your attention because you think it's pricing. It's actually in sales volume. Now, of course, the lower the sales volume. There's more pressure on prices going down, so sure. this is a relevant. It's a piece very of relevant, data, yeah. but uh, it isn't what uh, what often. It doesn't people, mean that you can go buy a condo for thirty percent off of what you would have what paid it was last, last year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here's the context: 2017, there was 104,000 real estate transactions in British Columbia. This year, it looks like we're going to round out at 82,000, so way below 2017. There's no sure. denying that. Yeah. But in, if we look at 10-year averages, we're looking at 84,800 as the average. So we're not that far off kind of 10-year averages in, in 2018. Gotcha. And here's the key thing. At least according to their projections, 2019 is going to be a busier year. We're looking at 89,000 as opposed to uh, the 82,000 this year. So, and this is a really interesting part. They have a chart that cha- that charts from 2005 through 2019. And if you look at it with in terms of sales volumes, you look at the years that were really slow. And when we talk about good years to buy, you see 2008 as really slow. You see 2012 as real really right. slow. And now you're going to see 2018 as really slow and 2019 bumps back up. So we've said it here before, 2018 is a great year to be shopping. And, um, you know, if this... This fork, reminds it, me of 2012. It does remind me of 2012 in the sense of uh, that it's deals are, are challenging to kind of keep together. Buyers yeah. have more selection. Um, you know, even though inventory, I think inventory is going to ramp up in September. For sure. Um, we're coming up on what's going to be a busy time for, for sellers getting ready. Once the kids are back to school, usually. Yeah. It's usually the first two weeks are quiet in September. And then as the, as you kind of hit the end of September, people start to say, well, you know, we've got the kids back to school. Let's focus on the things that, um, you know, the real, the work. Yeah, everybody's and, doing housekeeping right now. At least in my house, I think we uh, got some back to school shoes yesterday. So in other words, uh, we are we are seeing definitely downward pressure on pricing right now, and we're seeing sales volume is down. So it's it's really interesting to see what the fall holds. We've had a variety of pin- opinions on this podcast. Some people are very bullish, um, suggesting that they think it's going to be back to business as usual and the market's going to really pick up. Other people have been a bit more bearish, uh, thinking that, you know what, we're going to see a spike in inventory and the demand is going to remain low. So it's a very interesting perspective. Well, here, here's the thing with the BCREA, uh, what they think, right? Because they basically are saying the fall is going to play out with transactions remaining low. Right. So if that inventory shows up and those buyers don't, then we're going to see downward continued downward pricing. pressure. But in 2019, if they are right and we're moving back to 80, close to 89,000 transactions, that downward pressure is not going to last very long. Mm-hmm. And and the one thing we will say is on the ground right now, we are seeing deals happen. We're seeing opportunities. We're seeing stuff sell at a lower price point, even from three to six months ago. For sure. And there are opportunities for buyers right now. And if you think you know what your house is worth and you haven't uh, actually asked for a, an assessment recently, maybe it's time to reconsider and just to make sure that you, you have as much equity as you thought you did. Absolutely. Yeah, so anyway, what else do we got, Adam? Quickly, Matt, before we get to our interview with Sandy, I just wanted to talk about this new project that's coming up in uh, Langford, 
in just outside of Victoria. So right. people that don't know Langford, it's been described often as the Surrey of Victoria. Yeah, but, you said that before, but why why do they call it the Surrey of Victoria? Well, I think it's it's a really fast growing municipality in uh, BC. It's like one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing municipality. And the other thing is that because Victoria is getting so pricey, a lot of people you know, a lot of people are moving out to Langford. That's where the jobs are. There's a lot of job creation happening out there. So it's just, it's kind of like the pressure. The, same the same reason Valley. we're seeing yeah. the Fraser Valley in Surrey exploding right now. It's, uh, it's people are going there for work and expanding outwards. So this is kind of interesting for investors that are looking for positive cash flow. Because I didn't think cash, positive cash flow existed in BC anymore. You know what? This is an opportunity. It's a, it's a building in Langford. It's called Langford Tower. And we're actually going to have the CEO of Western Canadian Properties Group. His name's Dave Steele. We're going to have him on the podcast here in, I think, either next week or the week after. And then we're also having him on our Vancouver Presale Condos podcast, which is also available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And he's actually just going to be talking about this this property um, and where you can buy, how you can buy. Um, nice couple little tidbits about it. Vacancy rate, 1.5%, so super low. Yeah. Um, annual growth rate, 5%, super high. Yeah. Um, fastest growing city in BC, they're saying. Um, and the median household income is around $80,000. And the average rent currently is about 1300 per month. They're actually forecasting that that's going to be going up for one bedrooms closer to about 1500 a month. And the buy-in is a lot cheaper than Surrey, probably about $200 a square foot less than Surrey. Can't wait to have them on the program. This sounds like an interesting project. It's going to be super interesting. So stay tuned for that. And if you want to find out more about that project, it will be selling soon. So you can always get in touch. Absolutely. And last, Matt, before we get to our interview with Sandy, maybe we should provide some context for our listeners. Why did we want to have Sandy on in the first place? Yeah, so Sandy wrote one article that really um, struck me, and it's called How the Housing Market Works. Government intervention in the housing market is based on confused economics. One of the exciting things about this article is it really tackles this idea in places like Vancouver, San Francisco, New York, that most of the properties being built, especially in downtown in Vancouver, are luxury buildings. Okay. So we've heard this, you know, for a long time now, that people are saying they're not building housing for regular Vancouverites, right? Well, you think about, well, think about buildings like Butterfly or, you know, where you're seeing new buildings, but they're selling at 2800 Yeah, or there's a lot of three beds right at, um, or 8X on the park had tons of three bedrooms, but starting, you know, upwards. Astronomical yeah, prices. Yeah, it was like 1800 a foot not or something for the, like that. Not for the typical consumer. Exactly. So... You know, there's been a lot of um, anger over the last couple of years about this, and and Sandy takes it head on, which is kind of an interesting thing. So one of the things he does in this article that's really uh, useful, I think, is he talks about housing in using a car analogy. Okay. Right. So he uses three types of housing: the A, the B, the C, and he basically links them to how to cars. Mercedes S series is the A type of property, the luxury. Yep. You got a Honda Accord is the B. Where does your 1983 Pony fit in? <laughs> well, this is it. The Ford Fiesta is the C, right? Right. So everybody's mad. There's too many Mercedes. We need more Honda Accords. Right. And what the crux of his article that we'll link to is saying is, look, any supply is good supply because of this idea of filtering okay. that over time, 
A properties become B properties. And the more properties you build, the quicker A properties become B properties and B properties become C properties. There's more housing for everyone. Now, here's the thing. If government intervenes to limit the types of housing. So if government says, okay, we just want Honda Accords, we don't want luxury okay. uh, luxury builds. There's the people that can afford the A type of properties, the Mercedes, that are not looking for the Mercedes or not buying Mercedes because Mercedes aren't being built. So you have the rich and the middle class both looking at Honda Accords. And his point is the rich people could buy the richest, middle class can't. And if both of these groups of people are looking at those Honda Accords, the price of Honda Accords is going to go up. Middle class people are start going to look at Ford Fiestas, and there's fewer Ford Fiestas for people who can't afford Honda Accords. So the actual intervention here has a negative impact on the market. Interesting, interesting. So that is a lot to dissect and a lot to take in. Why don't we just cut to our interview with Sandy? Yeah, I mean, hey, there's nobody better to explain it than Sandy Akita. Filtering. With Sandy Akita. Filtering, you heard it here first, folks. Okay, enjoy. Okay, we're here with Sandy Akita, professor of economics at Purchase College in the State University of New York system. How are you doing, Sandy? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today. My pleasure. Sandy, can you maybe start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, in addition to being affiliated with Purchase College, um, I'm also a visiting uh, research associate at New York University. Um, I sit on the boards of a couple of uh, urban and economic-related institutes and centers. Um, But my current research focuses on, I guess you could say, the interconnections between cities, um, social cooperation, and entrepreneurial development. So how cities serve to stimulate um, entrepreneurial economic development. And at the moment, I'm writing a a book uh, on the economics and social theory of one of my heroes, um, the urbanist Jane Jacobs. Oh, right. Yeah. You know what, Uh, Robert Moses, I was just talking to somebody who said they can't believe there hasn't been an HBO series on Robert Moses yet. Yeah, he's uh, a very interesting, fascinating man, and uh, you know, not a lot of people like him because he's such a, a bully right. <laughs> of a person. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess that he's a fascinating person that you know, love to talk about sometime as well. Yeah, right. The the power broker, right? Um, so, so Sandy, we uh, got in touch with you because you wrote uh, an interesting article for the Foundation uh, for Economic Education called How the Housing Market Works. And it, it really struck me as pertinent to, to the Vancouver marketplace because over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of outcry over the type of housing that's been built. We, we definitely have a lack of housing here and prices have escalated quite quickly. Um, and everyone's saying, look, it's all of the new construction is, is being built for the ultra rich and we need housing built for us. Um, can you just, uh, kind of break down your article, how the housing market works and, and maybe why some of those, some of that outcry is, is misplaced? Sure. Um, I just tell you the motivation for writing that short essay was I was in a, a discussion, public discussion once with, uh, someone who was making just those arguments, particularly about New York. Um, and, you know, we have very similar problems here 
as, as you do in Vancouver and, and San Francisco and London and Paris, uh, not Tokyo, uh, interestingly enough, which we maybe talk about later, why that's not the case. But right. yeah, so I, I, the argument was made that you know, uh, only the rich can afford the new housing and the, 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 it's too expensive to build for the poor. And, you know, the immediate response to that is, um, well, you know, of course, that new housing, new anything, generally speaking, is not built for the poor. Uh, uh, there are new cars that uh, people on very low incomes cannot afford. Although there are cars, you know, like the Ford Fiesta, that uh, people on a low income could buy brand new. Uh, there are, you know, there's the Honda Accord, which uh, serves middle income, and then there's, uh, you know, the Mercedes and BMWs that are at the higher end. And, um, you know, it's interesting why that's, uh, that is the case in housing in some areas, but not in New York, and, and I don't know the case in Vancouver, it may be there as well. And so it, it's not that it's not profitable, to build things like Ford Fiestas uh, can be very pro- profitable as long as you can build in volume. And the problem that we experience here is there are the restrictions on building and increasing supply that make the incentives point toward developers building for the, the rich and the ultra-rich. So the article is just explaining the economics of that, uh, you know, how uh, filtering works. Filtering is where houses that are built for very rich people, like the old uh, uh, high-rise, uh, well-built uh, houses and apartment buildings that were built in the Bronx along the Grand Concourse uh, 100 years ago, uh, today are occupied mainly by low-income families. And what happens is that over the, over uh, years, uh, these uh, properties uh, become less valuable, they become worn down, um, you know, they need more maintenance repair, and so it kind of filters to the next uh, lower uh, income level, similar to, to, you know, cars. I can't afford a uh, Mercedes or a BMW that's brand new today, but, you know, I, I could afford that same car maybe five or six or seven years from now in the used car market. So it's like that. So filtering, even if all of the housing is built for the very rich, uh, over time, filtering takes place uh, where those houses become available to people on lower incomes. The other side of this, of course, is if you restrict that kind of housing and force developers to build uh, middle income, let's say, housing or lower income housing, that does two things, at least two things. One is it discourages development so that they may take their capital and invest in something other than housing because of those restrictions. Um, and the other thing is, if there's not, um, you know, very rich people can afford middle-income housing. And so that demand will simply shift to middle-income housing and raising prices there. Uh, I mean, that happens anyway. Somebody who could afford a $10 million townhouse may not want to pay $10 million because they would rather spend the money on their children's education or entertainment or travel or something like that. So the rich have all these options, which if you restrict the uppermost tier of housing would simply mean they'll, they'll have to compete with those on lower incomes and, you know, and the way things work out, people on lower incomes cannot compete with richer people. So even if all the housing that's built is luxury housing, and again, it's weird that that's the case in some locations and not in others, and we could talk about that. But uh, even that's the case, filtering um, can take care of some of that. 
and restricting and regulating the construction of luxury housing is, is just going to make uh, problems worse. And then the final part, just to be very quick, is um, costs don't determine value. So you may build a, um, a apartment uh, and it costs the developer a uh, million dollars to build it. But unless the cost to the buyer is low enough, that is the price that he or she is willing to pay, if it's less than a million dollars, then the developer is uh, going to be out of luck. So it's the expectation of what people are willing to pay, the buyers are willing to pay, that will give builders an incentive to build. So it's not costs, really, that drive prices up. It's the higher expectation of higher prices that um, enable and encourage builders to build these luxury apartments and so forth. Okay, so that was a, that's a lot to digest there. Um, a, f- a few thoughts that I'm thinking just people um, that are upset about the type of housing built in in Vancouver is it is it reasonable to think you know I'm thinking of a, a, a condo complex downtown that had you know everybody was saying we need more family housing downtown there's a lot of three bedrooms but the price per square foot was you know seventeen eighteen hundred a foot like very very high end. Uh, condos is is the assumption then that product over time is going to move kind of from filter down from A through B to C to to people that can actually uh, that live and work in Vancouver, but that that process is presumably going to take eighty to a hundred years. No, well, filtering is is one force, right? That is to say, I said if you take an extreme case where you only have uh, luxury housing, then even there, this, this, this filtering down of that housing over time will take care of it. But that's, you know, that situation itself is rather weird. You know, why is it that in places like New York and evidently in Vancouver, uh, at least seemingly the you know, majority of housing that's built is uh, luxury housing for the, for the rich and the super rich. And as I was saying before, it's often because, and, I would say, you know, typically because there are regulations that driven by people who live in various areas, which forbid uh, the construction of high density, particularly multifamily homes that would make uh, uh, units uh, affordable to people on lower income so that, you know, uh, what the developer can't make money. Um, the reason why the developer can't make money building uh, more moderately priced homes is that the, the volume that's necessary to do that is not permitted by local regulations. And again, um, people who live uh, in a place that's very nice, and I should I have to confess, I live in, in Brooklyn Heights here in New York, which is the first landmarked uh, neighborhood, uh, I think, in the country. And it's beautiful. It's like a museum quality, you know, uh, townhouses with restaurants. And it's, uh, you know, a lovely place, but it means that people uh, are priced out of the neighborhood. Um, there's restrictions on height that uh, cannot be exceeded. And, and so it's, uh, you know, for those of, of us who are here, it's, it's a very nice situation. But people who would like to live here, well, you know, they're out of luck unless they can pay, you know, millions of dollars to do that. Right. So there are these, these restrictions, whether it's landmarking or, or, or maximum density or minimum square footage uh, requirements that, uh, that uh, uh, make it less economical to build uh, at moderate income levels, 
uh, which otherwise would be in other parts of the country, right? Phoenix, you know, there's moderate uh, housing being built and, uh, you know, low income uh, housing being built. And, and I should, I'm sorry, I, I just I should add, add one more thing. In Phoenix, where I, I was born and raised near there, you know, we have mobile home parks. Now, a lot of that is being edged out. But I have family members who lived in mobile homes because they're too poor to afford, you know, standalone homes. And that's an option that for many years people had. I mean, it's not the greatest way to live, but at least that's that's somewhere you could have privacy. Uh, but in many areas, again, that is being that's that's being uh, uh, made illegal. So, so if I understand correctly, Sandy, there's kind of the two forces at work in places like New York and and Vancouver. One is developers kind of gauging demand and and if the market will bear uh, a certain type of product, they're going to build to the to the maximum in terms of in terms of at least price per square foot on the, that market and then there's the second kind of factor uh of regulation uh, is that kind of a you know the lack of ability to build more ford fiesta type housing there's there's just not the ability to do that right i mean in as an economist um you know, we think in terms often of, of supply and demand. So there's a high demand to live in Vancouver because, while I've never been there, I've seen pictures of it. And it's a beautiful city, um, and that part of the, uh, the of Canada and, and uh, is, is is lovely. Um, and similar in New York, a lot of this on the demand side, there's a lot of pressure uh, domestically and from foreign investors to invest here and to live here. Um, so the demand side is increasing, but you know historically. Um, supply side has also adapted to meet that increased demand. There's a profit to be made there, obviously. And so, uh, you know, in, in these uh, cities, people, entrepreneurs will respond by building to the market. And if the market uh, only allows for luxury housing, as I was trying to explain before, because of various restrictions on what you can build means that luxury housing is the most profitable, then that's exactly what's going to happen. Again, this doesn't happen in places like Phoenix or even in Tokyo, which is, has um, you know, a higher population uh, in greater Tokyo than, than New York. We're talking about 20, 21 million people. And in the most popular areas in Tokyo, in, in the middle of Tokyo, the increase in prices over the last um, 10 or 20 years has been minuscule compared to what it's been in New York or London, Paris, San Francisco, uh, I understand Vancouver in the last 10 years or so, the price has almost doubled. In, in, in Tokyo, it's increased by less than double. In fact, in this particular neighborhood called Minato, uh, the price over the last 10 or 12 years has increased like something like 40%, whereas in London and New York, it's, it's 400%. Uh, wow. And that has, that has mostly to do with building restrictions. Uh, they have much more liberal... Uh, building uh, codes and zoning codes in Tokyo than uh, elsewhere. Now, a lot of that cannot be directly translated, but if you want to talk later about possible solutions, I can allude to some of those. Sure. And and just to kind of flesh that out a bit, if my understanding of Tokyo is they're very relaxed with what you can build on on lots in terms of kind of floor space ratio to the to the land. Right. Okay, so that that makes sense. So basically, then that can accommodate more um, affordable housing or just more supply? More housing generally, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's other stuff going on there as well. There's the sort of 
there's there are non-economic factors. Um, you know, the norms that people have there in terms of tolerating noise and construction and constant turnover. Um, my understanding is in, that in Japan, one doesn't think of one's home as a long-term investment, right? As uh, unlike here in North America, uh, it, it's a place to live. And when you buy a home, um, Japanese in general, my understanding is they like to buy new homes. So if you buy the land, you're going to tear down what's there and rebuild. Um, you know, Tokyo and Japan in general have some of the most interesting and innovative residential and commercial architecture anywhere. And that's because they're constantly rebuilding. Now, that kind of thing probably would not be tolerated in North America, but it's just sort of the norm or the ethos of, okay, you know, our neighbor's going to tear down the house and it's going to happen and this and so then you, so you, you put up with it. So some of these things would be hard, I think, to translate uh, to, you know, uh, cultures that we're more familiar with. But at the same time, I think we can learn something about flexibility uh, and zoning and density and um, building codes and setbacks and so forth that that uh, would actually um, help the situation on the supply side and housing and other areas, uh, conversions and so forth, um, that uh, we're experiencing today. One question that comes to mind, Sandy, is, is you know, these kind of global superstar cities or, or whatever you want to call them, the London, Paris, um, Hong Kong, Vancouver, um, you know, th- a lot of the talk over the last, say, five, ten years has been about, you know, this, the ultra-rich from around the world essentially using housing as as a as a way to kind of park money, right? Uh, is Tokyo uh, um, is there the same foreign demand in Tokyo as as in those superstar cities? Is that potentially a factor there in terms of yeah. price increases? You know, I don't. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'm, you know, that is certainly the case. I mean, Americans, Canadians, Europeans are investing in housing in in uh, in Tokyo, uh, you know, as well. It's a, it's as you say, it's a global city. Um, you know, part of that is is pure speculation, and uh, you know, that's always been a part of of uh, land markets. Um, but also, you know, global cities are that way because. Um, businesses locate there. Um, the, you know, people who are working in, in, in different industries are there, and so companies will often, uh, either the same company or a company from the same country, will invest in in um, real estate that will complement those more business or commercial or industrial investments that are going on. Um, and so, it's not, to my understanding, it's not just you know, pure speculation in and in, in real estate and land markets, but it's it's this uh, it's the um, global character of the city. We have all these different things going on, um, entertainment, business, and so forth that uh, encourage um, you know people not living in that city or even in the country to want to live there or to invest there. And I think that's a you know, in general, uh, that's a good thing. You know, cities are. One of the things that makes the city great is that it's innovative, it's experimental, it's creative, and it changes. All those things involve disruption and disappointment and change. <laughs> right. Which, you know, to one degree or another, most of us don't like. Um, but, you know, if you want to have a great city, the kind of city that Jane Jacobs wrote about, those are the kind of things you have to kind of tolerate. Otherwise, you know, you can live in some place that doesn't change very much and is basically boring. 
Yeah, makes sense. Um, so Sandy, maybe switching gears here a bit, we've had a, a lot of government intervention in our housing market over the past few years here in Vancouver. Is government intervention in the housing market ever a good idea? Well, I mean, that's a very broad question. If you're talking about nuisance, you know, regulations, safety, things like that, you know, I think uh, that's, you know, those are there for a reason. I, you know, there may be ways for uh, to handle that, which doesn't involve as much government regulation, but, you know, fire codes and safety codes and, uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's one kind of intervention. I think what uh, we want to really think hard about are the kinds of housing interventions that say, for example, um, we want to promote single-family home ownership. And that was the driving force, uh, at least in the United States, um, in the 20th century, and particularly after World War Two, where you know financial markets were geared toward the funding of single-family homes and discouraged multifamily home, you know, borrowing for multifamily homes and more for single-family homes. Um, infrastructure was built uh, to accommodate uh, suburban development uh, where those homes could be built. I'm talking about you know, interstate highways, uh, water, electricity, sewer, etc. And so that was the prevailing vision of you know intervening in the home. Uh, housing market, uh, you know, we got to get people in, in their own homes with lawns and so forth. And so that contributes to what? Well, another problem, which is uh, suburban sprawl, uh, environmental issues that crop up, racial issues that have sort of uh, come into play there. And so, you know, that's a different kind of government invention, which I think I'm very skeptical about. When you try to impose on a you know, a, a living urban environment, a particular vision, and those things always go wrong. And what and what about, so in Vancouver, we've had recently um, a foreign buyer's tax implemented that was 15%. Now it's moved to 20%. Uh, they've uh-huh. increased the uh, property taxes on, on properties that are valued at over $3 million. Uh, uh-huh. There's a new BC speculation tax uh, that is uh-huh. a kind of a misnomer, but there's a lot of th- uh, increase to property transfer tax. There's a lot of um, things that have come into play to essentially curb demand right now. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Do you think those types of policies are... Are misplaced, or, or is is it a good idea well, I mean, to try and curb are, demand at times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are you know interventionist responses or regulatory responses to a problem that may be largely attributed to other kinds of regulations and restrictions. And we're talking about the supply side now that created it. So these higher prices and all of that. Um, and so in that respect, demand side. And trying to control the demand side is, is uh, you know, something that is uh, secondary to what the main problem might be. The other thing is that, you know, if you, uh, I know you have vacancy taxes there, and, and as you mentioned, these are the sorts of taxes on properties and, and over, over a certain valuation. Um, you know, as if you could precisely target those taxes and identify correctly you know, the people that you want to discourage from investing, um, you know, it might have the effect that you're intending, but, you know, how can you really tell when somebody who buys a property, 
that's valued at $10 million, whether they're doing it, you know, for purposes like pure speculation that you may not like, or, you know, in fact, that they want to do something with it, which would enhance the, which, which would make local people happy. I don't know, whatever that may be, building uh, more accommodating, more housing. So that targeting issue and the knowledge problem that's involved there, uh, finding you know just the right people and just the right tax and, and imposing it in just the right way is is, is problematic. And, and more generally, it, if you tax something like cigarettes or alcohol or uh, things of that nature to discourage them, um, you know it, it, it's very complicated. It depends on how sensitive people are to those you know price changes, and and you run the risk of creating black markets and illegal activity. You know, if you, uh, you know, not, a, not that, you know, if you raise the price, of, if you raise the tax high enough, it's tantamount to, to banning something. And mm. prohibitions have, uh, uh, you know, caused all kinds of social and criminal problems in the past. People who are willing to break the laws in order to, you know, get uh, an investment in to can, who can laundry, launder money and, and filter money and, and all of that. And that's a tremendous waste of resources. Um, and so you really have to think about those consequences uh, um, that economists you know, are very aware of and, and have written about, and, and uh, people who are proposing these sorts of things should, should uh, you know, at least be aware that these negative consequences, things that they wouldn't like, could, uh, could result from that. Fascinating stuff. So, Sandy, maybe we'll, we have one more question here for you, and I know you're, you're uh, a busy guy. Uh, what in your mind then is a solution to exceedingly high housing costs? And maybe as a follow-up, what are your thoughts on speculation in in the housing market? Well, um, let me just answer the, the question about speculation. Just in general, I mean, we all speculate, right? When you um, know that uh, or you hear that there's going to be uh, a... Uh, a boost in the price of, of gasoline. You might go today and fill up today rather than tomorrow. If you think that uh, there's going to be a storm coming, you might, in, you know, go out and buy more water and maybe a generator and all of that. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's part of uh, a well-functioning economic system where people do speculate. And, you know, the thing about, about land is that, you know, you have a mostly fixed asset. And so it's very much more sensitive to changes in demand. That being the case, then um, flexibility in land markets is crucial. And by flexibility, once again, I mean allowing um, builders and uh, you know the sellers of these things and the buyers of them to, to adapt and be flexible. Uh, if people are willing to buy um, multifamily units, uh, you know, and tolerates uh, less square footage to uh, do without cars, uh, you know, get rid of minimum parking requirements. Uh, believe it or not, we, st- we have minimum parking requirements here in New York City, um, which is kind of ridiculous, at least in most places. Getting rid of, um, of uh, not getting rid of, but being aware of the consequences of, oh, making neighborhoods landmarked or heritage areas, um, just, you know, what some people have proposed is that you uh, allow uh, uh, commissions to do that, but uh, uh, you know, limit the, the budget, so to speak. If you're going to increase, uh, you can only increase the, uh, the number of, of uh, neighborhoods or, or, or acres of, of, of uh, landmarked neighborhoods by X amount. And once you get to that point, you have to um, 
de landmark other areas if you want to landmark one area. So things like that. Just in other words, uh, making people aware of the costs and consequences of the kinds of policies that they want to propose. And Sandy, just to follow up, the solution to exceedingly high housing costs, if you had a silver bullet? Well, uh, as I was saying before, it, it's, it's largely today in places where there are high demand, a supply side problem, increasing the supply of housing units. You can't increase very easily the amount of land that's available. That's usually something that's fixed in supply. So um, it's necessary to increase the number of dwellings in, in a given uh, area. So, you know, we can increase the floor area ratio, in, uh, uh, liberalize um, uh, density restrictions, uh, eliminate parking requirements. Uh, like we, as I was saying before, we have, we have parking requirements in New York, which, um, you know, is kind of ridiculous, uh, minimum parking requirements. And, and those things which use land in ways that people who want to rent or buy really don't want um, but are forced to, and as a result uh, may not be able to afford a particular area. So it's a supply-side problem, um, mainly that's causing prices to rise, which is not to say that prices would not rise. But in that case, we'd have uh, probably a phenomenon more like Tokyo, where the prices have risen between 10 and 40% over the last 10 or 12 years, versus the problem in New York or in San Francisco or in London, where the price has gone up by a magnitude of like 400% during that same time. Excellent. Well, fascinating stuff. So, Sandy, how, how can people find out more about what you do? Well, there are a number of sources, um, but, and, you know, if you want a, a quick, um, two quick sources are online. If you uh, Google market urbanism, there is a website, which is the website for the Center for Market Urbanism, and I'm on the board of directors of that. There's another uh, website called the Market Urbanism Report. So if you Google that, you get uh, to their website. And both websites have short, very informative essays, both of sort of a general principles level, but often um, uh, geared toward current problems and issues, especially housing, uh, but other things having to do with transport and economic development in general. So uh, Market Urbanism and the Market Urbanism Report. And we'll definitely link to those websites on in our show notes as well. So thanks again for your time today. Uh, fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks so much, Sandy. My pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Sandy Aikida, professor of economics at Purchase College. Fascinating conversation with Sandy, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was great. Now, one thing I would implore everyone who's interested in learning more about this is really read his article because I think there's it's so clear and concise and it's short. It's a slippery it's it's a slippery bit of information to kind of understand just especially while you're listening to this perhaps jogging or uh, driving to work. Yeah, absolutely. There's absolutely. a lot of elements that he's that we cover in that conversation, but I agree. If you read his article, it's laid out in this really easy easily digestible way and uh, you can you can think about it and it actually in a lot of cases it sheds light on a, on a lot of interesting cities. You think of your New York City 
Yeah, right. Yeah, New York, San Francisco. It's uh, yeah, it's hundred percent. It really does outline exactly what's happening and why. What else do we got here, Matt? Well, we got Vancouver Real Estate Podcast dot com. Um, we are so excited. We are building out all the calculators currently that we want to use for our own investments. Well, so this yeah, is, we're basically taking our Excel sheets and and converting them, them to calculators. I know, and it's so exciting. And uh, we're having all the code basically built right now so we're having them coded they're going to be on the site soon so stay tuned for that we'll let you know when they're actually on the site they are going to be the best calculators available online so if you're an investor out there or even if you're just a home buyer these are going to cover everything it's going to be for people looking to buy and sell in bc which is going to be fantastic yeah no it's uh you know those calculators exist elsewhere especially in the u.s it seems like they're out there but not these in are gonna, canada these are these are canada specific calculators yeah and they're going to exist on our site and uh we are so math works differently here. we're so excited That's we're right. so excited about how the math works in bc <laughs> uh differently than other provinces yeah exactly yeah, exactly stay tuned for that what else do we got we got private client services uh, we do, Matt. If you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market, just realtor level information. And it's free and it's available on our site and you create your own portfolio. It is fantastic. If you're not using PCS, you're doing it wrong. We also have that mobile app for on the go. On the go, Matt, picture this. You are on a school bus. I don't know why you're going back to school. You're Rodney Dangerfield. No, you know, you got a, you got a, uh, I get no respect. You get no respect, but you're driving in the school bus and you're, and you're looking and you see this beautiful building. You point your phone at it. It tells you exactly what listings are in there and uh, you can buy one. Yeah. You know what? My, My kid goes on a walking school bus now. What's that? Is that it's like where, a group of kids that meet and walk to school together. Why do they have to call it a school bus? Why don't, don't they just call it's, it a group it's a great, walking it's to a school? Great, it's a great idea. It is, eh? Yeah. Interesting. Well, hey, Matt, with that said, how can people reach you? 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that nonpartisan line, info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. So have a great week, guys. So many great guests coming and calculate. Oof. The fall is looks bright. It's <laughs> for the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast at least. Nerd alerts. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling and you come out just 
feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Konkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 